Uh, We're going to uh, turn uh, back in our Bibles, if you would please, to Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, it's my intention simply to to work our way through uh, this chapter together, obviously a great deal more in it uh, than we can uh, really uh, deal with in the space of this one message, but seeking to to pick out the the great themes uh, in order that we might be uh, encouraged and challenged uh, tonight. As Christians, the way we think about God uh, will have uh, an influence on the way in which we think about everything else. When God is small in our imagination, uh, then sin will become trivial in our estimation. When God ceases to um, be thought of as holy and awesome, then we will tend to become worldly uh, and our worship trivialized. And therefore, perhaps there's no greater need for Christians today than to capture a renewed sense of the glory of the one true God. And perhaps in in many respects, no part of scripture to which we can turn that will will help us more to be able to, to do that than this sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet, that is, he was called to be God's spokesman, in the first instance to his own generation, Uh, and of course the word that the Lord gave to him uh, is a word that uh, continues to speak to every subsequent generation, and indeed to us uh, this evening. But at the time Isaiah had been called in in, in this capacity, uh, the majority of the people of Judah uh, had Uh, downgraded God, at least in their imagination, and had begun to think of him as just one deity uh, amongst many others. They didn't really care as to whether they pleased him with their lives or not. And to make matters worse, uh, Uzziah had just died. Uh, We read about that in the opening words of this chapter. Again, I'm reading this evening from the English Standard Version. In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had been a good king, at least for the most part. One of the relatively few kings, especially as the years went by in the kingdom of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. One of the relatively few whose reign was characterized by and large by and godliness, but his reign hadn't ended well. And in those last, uh, that last period of his life, he'd lived in isolation as a leper as a result of the judgment that God brought upon him for taking upon himself uh, the responsibility of the priesthood, which was uh, uh, exclusively reserved for the uh, descendants of Levi. His son reigned in his place now as joint uh, reigned in his place in those last days as, as joint regent with him. And then when Uzziah died, he took his place on the throne exclusively. But Jotham, Uzziah's son, was not a good man. And so the death of Uzziah, to people like Isaiah in particular, must have seemed like the end of an era. It seems likely that Isaiah had great hopes for Uzziah only to see them dashed. But if so, it is in this vision 
that Isaiah has his hopes reconfigured and his confidence renewed. So we're going to turn to it uh, together this evening and as we uh, do so, see here first what Isaiah saw. What Isaiah saw. And we can sum up what he saw in, in a very few words by saying that it was a vision of the holiness of God. To begin with there in, in uh, verse 1 again, we, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Because in the ancient world, when a king died, the successor would take his place. He would be uh, given the throne. He would ascend the throne uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his place. And the people would, uh, uh, would um, say that uh, uh, the, the king is dead. Long live the king. One king has passed from the scene, but there is another king there immediately to step in uh, for him, as it were. And we might say that, that is what Isaiah is seeing here, but with one very significant difference. It is not as though the Lord is going to take over the throne from Uzziah. It is not as though Uzziah is now off the, the scene and the Lord steps into his place. The Lord is the ever-reigning king. Jotham may have taken the place of Uzziah on the throne of Judah, but throughout all eternity, the Lord has sat upon the throne of heaven. He sits on the throne of the universe so that nothing happens of which he, over which he is not in control. The Lord Jesus is not so much as a, a sparrow, those uh, birds of such little consequence that they, they're sold for the, the, the minimum amount of money in the marketplace. Not, not so much as one of those falls to the ground, but it is the will of his Father that it should be so. <coughs> and so nothing happens of which, over which he's not in charge, including the death of Uzziah. Isaiah needed to understand that God was reigning in his world. That when his world seemed to be falling apart, when it seemed as though the future looked, was beginning to look rather more bleak with Uzziah's passing, Isaiah needed to understand that God was still reigning in his world. Something that we need to be continually reminded of ourselves. We need not just to understand it in the sense that we're able to trot it out as a set of facts. Not to understand it simply in the sense that, that, that I've got it. I, I, I understand something of the, the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But we need to understand it in the sense that we really feel it to be true. That it genuinely affects the way in which we see and relate to the world. One of the <coughs> effects of all that was happening was that there was uh, a crisis in Judah. The faithful people of God were wringing their hands, wondering what was in store for them. Uzziah had gone. Jotham 
promised nothing but a, a further slide into sin and wickedness. But here Isaiah sees this vision. And he sees that God is seated on his throne. He's not pacing the room with worry, as it were. But he's seated because he is in control. Earlier this year, you might remember that uh, um, there were many reminders of the 20th anniversary of what had happened in, in New York in the year 2001. Uh, the 9-11 attacks, as they have now, been, uh, now become known. Uh, and one picture that kept on being repeated, one little, um, uh, little incident that kept on being replayed, that uh, was the picture of President Bush when he was told what, had, what was happening. He was in a school. He was seated on a little chair addressing some school children. A very ordinary um, uh, thing for him to be doing. When one of his aides whispered in his ear. And you can see him go pale with shock and a sense of helplessness. Here is the most powerful man in the world as the President of the United States tends to be described. And yet he's been caught out by events that are entirely beyond his control. Events that were completely unexpected. But you see, nothing like that happens in heaven. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing ever happens that is not under his direction and control. Uzziah had been a great king in so many ways. And yet his glory had faded. But that wasn't so of the living God. We may not always be able to understand why certain things happen. But we can be sure and confident of this. But he does. Nothing good or bad in our estimation happens without him. We can be sure that there is never a moment when he is not in control. See, Isaiah's words are, are somewhat enigmatic, aren't they? He saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He says he saw the Lord, and yet all he describes is, uh, is the train of his robe. See, the, the prophet is describing less what he actually saw, which is probably in its own terms indescribable. He's describing less what he actually saw than he is the impression that it all made on him. We might, we might say that it's rather more an abstract than a representative painting. And then in verses 2 and 3 he goes on. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His seraphim, fiery beings, 
Raymond Altman says they're living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. You see, they're heavenly beings who've never known sin. They've never fallen in the way that you and I have. They have lived from the beginning of their creation in perfect obedience to Almighty God. And yet in his presence, this is how they react. Notice that they cover their eyes, but not their ears. They're quick to listen in order that they might obey. And their reaction to being in the presence of the Lord is seen in their words. Alec Mottier says Hebrew uses repetition to express superlatives or indicate totality. Only here a threefold repetition is found. Holiness is supremely the truth about God, and his holiness is so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be invented. In verse 4, he tells us the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called in the house, at the, at the voice of him who called in the house, was filled with smoke. The shaking of the doorposts and the threshold prohibit Isaiah from entering in, and the smoke prevents him from seeing God. He's in the presence of God's holiness. But what exactly does that mean? Well, there's a sense in which it's impossible to adequately answer that question. It isn't merely sinlessness, though it is never less than that. But you see, we see the reaction of these sinless seraphim, in which they hide their faces, they cover their feet and cry out, holy, holy, holy. If we ask what, what it is to speak of God's holiness, well, on one level we can put it like this, uh, rather clumsily perhaps, but nonetheless, we might say that it is his godness. It is what separates him from all his creation. And then we see its effect on the prophet in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eye, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was entirely flawed. We don't know at precisely what stage his spiritual experience uh, had reached at, at this point. We, we're not entirely sure whether the... the the events of, that are recorded here in chapter 6 are actually describing Isaiah's call to, to be a prophet and, and the, therefore that the previous chapters of the book are a kind of a introduction uh, to everything else. But whatever stage he was at in his spiritual life, the one thing we must stress is that this man is clearly a believer. And yet even so, in the presence of the living God, all he can see is his sin. How significant this is. What Isaiah feels in the first instance when he finds himself in the presence of the living God whose very train fills the temple, who's seated upon his throne. The first thing that he feels is not so much his smallness, 
as his sinfulness. And you see, we can say this as the Lord calls Isaiah into his service in this passage. We can say that this, in a sense, is the first prerequisite for usefulness in the service of God. The sense of our own sin that drives out any sense of pride, any feeling that we can be useful to God simply because of who we are or the gifts that we're able to bring. It is the humble and broken who are most useful in his service, not the proud and self-sufficient. James Philip says this, have you noticed when the Spirit of God convicts, it is generally something specific he puts his finger on. You see, Isaiah doesn't just say, well, woe is me, I'm a terrible sinner, and leave it at that. He has this immediate concern for his words. He's discovering that he's a sinner in the one area of his life where God is most going to use him. He's called to be a preacher. He's going to use his words to challenge others. But now he realizes that, that uh, he realizes how often he's used those very words for the wrong reasons. Now, now some reading that might think to themselves, or, or perhaps want to interrogate the prophet and say to him, Isaiah, is that all you've got? A little bit of gossip, perhaps, the odd lie here and there. Well, it doesn't amount to much, does it? Isaiah isn't confessing to being a drunkard or an adulterer, for instance. Surely this is just a little bit of what we might call respectable sin. Isn't he being just a little dramatic? Making a fuss over nothing? You know, that's a question that none of us would ask. If we really met with the living God. So we thought about what Isaiah saw, but now we must move on to consider what Isaiah experienced. And we see that in the remarkable picture that's drawn for us in, in verses 6 and 7. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You see, he receives this word of assurance, his sins have been forgiven. And it's a costly forgiveness. Because it comes from the altar where blood has necessarily been shed. The blood where sacrifices were offered on a daily basis to atone for sin. But of course, even then, that wasn't the ultimate altar. That was the place where the Lord Jesus Christ died. Condemned as a criminal and nailed to a Roman gibbet for our forgiveness. But we need to be careful, don't we, not to get there too quickly, as it were. But to see first and to feel something of the burning holiness of Almighty God. You see, it's when we do that we begin to really appreciate what's happening at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it necessary for the sun to be darkened? Why do we hear him crying out in the way that he does? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
There on the cross, he paid the price for our unclean lips. And for every so-called respectable sin that you and I might have committed. Along with all of the sins of which we are properly and rightly ashamed. And then notice that the coal touches his lips, the same uh, lips with which he had called out those lips that he himself has condemned. Those lips can now be used in the service of this holy God. Those who must serve the Lord must first know the personal experience of his grace. And every Christian has experienced on, on one level what Isaiah did in this sense, that we've received the same costly forgiveness. Dale Ralph Davis says, what is so delightful about this segment of Isaiah's vision is that it shows the God who makes you see your filthiness has also provided for you a cleansing. All of which is based on an atoning sacrifice. How we need to, how we continually need a sense of two things. Two things that always go together, the sense of how holy God is and the, the wonder of our forgiveness. The hymn writer encourages us, doesn't he, uh, she, to, to, to look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and there to see two things. The wonder of his glorious love and uh, uh, and my own worthlessness, uh, there's a sense in which that particular use of words isn't the most helpful because none of us, having been made in the image of Almighty God, are ever entirely worthless. But certainly when we gaze upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the wonder of his glorious love and our own sinfulness. We must never lose sight of what it cost a holy God to pardon sinners. We must seek an ever-increasing grasp of his holiness. And in the light of that, the darkness of our unsinfulness. <clears throat> so we thought about what Isaiah saw and what he experienced. Lastly, we need to take a moment to do to think about what Isaiah heard. <clears throat> Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The first time the Lord speaks in this passage, and when he does so, uh, he uh, speaks in, in, in using the, the plural. Who will go for us? Is he addressing the seraphim, or is this a, a, a kind of royal pronoun? Well, most likely the, the, the answer is that what we have here is a kind of pre-echo of the Trinity. A hint, as we find occasionally in the Old Testament, of the fact that the one God is nonetheless three. But one way or another we have Isaiah's response. Then I said, here am I, send me. Which is followed by the Lord's description of the task for which he's volunteering in, in verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. <clears throat> that must have been a pretty depressing commission. 
We may find ourselves wondering whether Isaiah would have been so quick to volunteer if he'd known beforehand what it was that he was putting himself forward for. But he asks the question in verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? To which he receives the reply. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord remove people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, until the people are taken into exile in Babylon. That was the punishment that God had decreed for forsaking him. And Isaiah was to be the one who would bring this word to the people of Judah. In his lifetime, the effect of his ministry would be mainly to condemn his own generation. But even though that is the case, there was still to be a glimmer of hope for the future. In verse 13 we read, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now, there's much that is enigmatic about those words, and, and that's why we find uh, slightly different translations in different versions of the Bible. But overall, I think their, tr- their, their thrust is clear. You see, that is, they, they, they point forward to the source of our hope that is to be found in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah will have more to say along the same lines when he gets to chapter 11 and verse 1, where he speaks about a, a, shoot, a, 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 a shoot that will come forth from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots will bear fruit, of course, Jesse being the father of David, from David's family, which is now like a tree that has been uh, uh, cut down, as it were, at the roots, but nonetheless this branch will spring forth. And and later on, uh, Jeremiah is going to take up the same theme. So when we get to to Jeremiah chapter uh, 23 and and verses uh, uh, 5 and 6, we have uh, uh, God's promise there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, this chapter begins with the death of King Uzziah. It seems as though that things have reached the a, a, a low ebb as far as the people of, of, of God are concerned. But the Lord is saying to Isaiah, you think things are bad now, they're going to get worse and they're going to keep getting worse. Until the point is reached when the promises of God will seem to be reduced to ruins. But from those ruins, hope will spring. That mighty tree which was the family of David will be cut down. Within a few generations, it will seem to have been brought to an end altogether. And yet a branch will spring up from its roots. Because we know that all this refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. As we remind ourselves at this time of the year in particular, he will be born at the time when God's promises seem to have been extinguished 
time when it seems that uh, uh, there is darkness over the whole land, as Isaiah himself will, uh, will later say in, in chapter 9. And yet into that darkness, the light will begin to shine. From the point of view of Isaiah and even of Jeremiah, who lived some time later, over a hundred years or so later, all of this was in the distant future. In the meantime, Isaiah has been told that he will preach and no one will listen. His message is going to be rejected by the vast majority of his people. That may seem like a depressing commission, and on one level, of course, it was. And yet it was also full of grace. Because, you see, Isaiah wasn't given false hopes. The Lord told him what to expect in order that he would not be disappointed. And in fact, he would have much to say that would be wonderfully positive, even if most of it would be for future generations. And so we too are to press on in the service of the Lord. Not defining success in the way that the world does. It may be that the Lord has called us to serve him in a, a generation in which we'll see mostly decline and disappointment. But even if that, isn't the, that is the case, it, it, it ought nonetheless to be true that it has no bearing on the way we carry out our commission today. What moved Isaiah to offer his service was not hope in the outcome, but two things. The awareness of God's holiness and of his grace. It was these things, these two things that caused Isaiah to volunteer for God's service. It was these two things that would help him to press on through what was ahead. He was willing to serve God, and of course he did serve him. For another uh, 40 or so heartbreaking years. Years in which things were as bad as the Lord had led him to expect them to be. There were very few who seemed to believe his message. He was rejected by the multitudes and it seems finally martyred. Tradition says that he was sawn in half at the, hand, at the, the, the hands of another wicked king, King Manasseh. And yet he remained faithful to his Lord. And lived in the, vision, in the light of this vision God had given him. The vision of a holy God, the God who was reigning through all that had happened. The God who had forgiven all his sins. And above all, he had that word of hope into which we can enter so much more fully today. As Raymond Ortland says, God was finished with Isaiah's generation, but that didn't defeat salvation. Jesus did come. And his grace will remake the whole world. And that's to be our focus, isn't it? Whether we see much or little happening in our generation. But just as Isaiah knew that the day would come when his, when his message would be vindicated, so do we. Our labor can never be in vain in the Lord. And in the meantime, what should enable us to press on is this very same vision. That vision of the holiness of God 
of the sinfulness of our own hearts and the wonder of his forgiveness.